My name's David and this is the Hypothetic RL Podcast, a podcast about the what-ifs of rugby league history. On the line I have Tony Collins, well-known author and historian of not just rugby league but of uh, sport in general. How are you going, Tony? Yeah, I'm doing fine, thanks, David. Uh, glad to be on the show, looking forward to it. No, that's great. Uh, I just realised that I gave you the Australian how you doing rather than hello. I should have just started with hello. Can't help myself, I've just too much Australian in me. Uh, no, just about, no I, I don't, I'm not even sure, to be honest, I'm not even sure what standard, um, uh, standard, the standard English greeting would be, really. It's, it's something you just take for granted. Oh, Although, given the influence of Australian rugby league and British rugby league, um, yeah, you do, you do get people say, even British people saying good day to each other. <laughs> no, that's good. All right, well, um, I just wanted to say you are one of the, I'm not, I'm not going to put down my other guests down, but, um, it's very, it's much of a highlight to have you on. I, I've listened to your podcast, Rugby Reloaded, many times, and and your episodes and, and your, your books are fantastic. And you're just uh, someone that I know really loves the game of rugby league, loves all sport, but um, really has a, a great interest as a, as a historian as well. And um, I'm really glad to have you on as, as this is not really a history podcast, but a bit of an alternative history podcast. So I like to take the things that uh, you know well and love and I like to play around with them and, and do unusual things. So we'll see what we can do for this one tonight. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it, it's one of the great things about the, what's happened with podcasts in the last well, couple of years is that there's a real rugby league podcast community that's developed with people looking at all different angles on the game. And the other thing that's great about it is that it, it crosses borders. It doesn't matter whether you're in leagues i am or in australia or new zealand or france people mm-hmm. still you know people can still communicate as a community so uh, so yeah it, it's and it's great to be part of that community and play a role in, in helping to create it and sustain it that's great well i think well, without further ado we'll uh have a look at what the episode is so did you want to give us a bit of an intro about uh what you wanted to talk about well i thought one of the great what ifs of rugby league uh a, a, a true sliding doors moment is the nine, June 1939 letter from the California Rugby Union that arrived uh, where I am today in Leeds at the headquarters of the Rugby Football League hmm. um, uh, saying that the California Rugby Union had decided to uh, it was dissatisfied with, with Rugby Union and wanted to discuss affiliating and switching over to Rugby League mm-hmm. and it's one of those, um, as I say, it's, it's a sliding doors moment. It, it potentially uh, could have completely altered the landscape. Yet, when we look at it and you know examine what happened after it, mm-hmm. it also uh, illustrates one of the great, um, uh, the great unfortunate um, tr- truths of rugby league that uh, uh, we do tend to this opportunity. Yeah, no, that's fine. Look, I'm not going to repeat your favourite uh, thing that everyone says to you every time because I'm sure you're getting sick of everyone saying your words back to you, but it it, uh, it really is one of those things. I think this is also a good way of framing it to talk about just generally uh, the missed opportunities in North American Rugby League. Uh, you know, we've, we've just had some quite recently, but obviously there's been ones in the past as well. So 
Um, what do you think? If uh, obviously you know, I've, I've heard your response before, but basically the the uh, rugby league over in England just said, "Look, you're too far away. We can't do anything for you. Um, we can't help you out." And they it sort of just died on the vine right there. But um, what do you think may have happened if they would have given some assistance to this California rugby union? Well, one of the thing, what, one of the things that makes this more interesting is that the RFL's response was in contrast to the response after World War II. The RFL's response was very positive. And they replied and said, yes, we'd like to come out and discuss this with you. And then uh, a few weeks later, they also got a letter from uh, uh, an exiled Rochdale Hornet supporter saying, look, things are very exciting here. Everybody, you know, people in rugby union are talking about rugby league. Um, And it looks like there's a real opportunity. So the RFL actually planned to send two people over to discuss with the, with the Californians. Oh. However, and I think this is why it makes it interesting, because it's sort of, it, it's the other side of the coin, that often we think, oh, the RFL, uh, uh, or the Australian Border Control just weren't interested. Mm. Um, in this example, they were interested, but this objective circumstances got the better of them. So it's June 1939. Uh. I think, great, we'll send people over, uh, we'll send a t- perhaps send a team over when the 1940 uh, Lions come back from Australia they can stop off in California play a few games mm-hmm. but of course what happens on the 3rd of September 1939 just you know three months after the letter arrived at the RFL World War II breaks out and all bets are off yeah okay and so it's a good it's a good example of how sometimes objective circumstances get the better of the game as well that there's just something that uh, that, um, that you can't do anything about. Yeah. Well, we all know we all know that rugby union and the Nazis are in bed together. So, do you feel like Adolf Hitler maybe started World War Two just to stop California rugby union swapping over yeah, rugby league? I, I, I'm, a, I'm as paranoid a league as anybody, <laughs> uh, but even I don't believe that Hitler started to stop rugby league to California. Yeah. Um, I think the. So, but what it does is, so there, so there is that opportunity, and they did, did recognise it. Mm-hmm. But when you think of that, then you all, you know, you've got to think, well, what did they do before that, and what did they do after? Mm-hmm. And you can see it's just a complete wasted, wasted opportunity. Yes. Um, so, like, you know, they they never played when the when the Lions went to Australia and came back. They always came. They always came back through North America because mm-hmm. uh, at that point, until the 1950s, they were on a boat. So they'd either go through Canada or America. Uh, mm-hmm. They never, apart from 1928 in Canada, they never played any exhibition games in America. Uh, they they never did anything to help the game in Canada or to promote the game uh, in America. So it, it is a classic lost opportunity in that sense uh, of missing that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you can't blame them for 1939. That's... I, I'd obviously not no. understood what date you said there, but yeah, like like you're saying, yeah. all the opportunities up till then, you know, the California Rugby Union, if they had perhaps seen the Lions in in one of the tours play, you know, it might have might have swayed them much earlier than then, and it, you know, who knows what would have happened? It might have well, been, a... there were, yeah. But there were also opportunities as well because um, in what 1933, uh, Harry Sunderland wrote to George Hallis, the owner and head coach of the Chicago Bears, like the, the father of the Bears, still the most famous Chicago Bear ever. Mm-hmm. Um, saying, look, we're playing rugby league. Uh, 
it looks very similar to the type of game you all played in American football in, in the 20s and 30s was uh, pretty similar to rugby because although thought you could pass the ball forward it's it's relatively rare and it's a much more of a running game mm-hmm. a ground game as Americans would call it uh, apart from with blocking so there were a lot of crossovers and there was talk that um, it would be there would be a potential for uh, American footballers to uh, switch to rugby league for international games because obviously there was no international American football yeah. um, so they, they didn't have so the level of international competition for uh, for Americans was basically concentrated on on the Olympics and for football and baseball as well there wasn't any uh, any international competition so, the, so there was a possibility there mm-hmm. and you know not, that wasn't really followed up on either yeah yeah, I, well, I wonder, you know, I, I don't know whether the Chicago Bears playing rugby league would have been a, well, I mean, it would have been pretty major if they could have got that team to come across. I, I'm not a big, like, not a big amount of knowledge in, in the uh, the American football, and I know that, you know, it was very, it was very kind of um, little cities. It wasn't, it wasn't large, you know, it wasn't like it is today, obviously. Yeah. There was, you know, it was pretty much just a suburban kind of sport and there was lots of teams in, in Chicago. I, but I think Chicago had its own sort of, almost its own league in a way. There was a lot of um, a lot of teams that came from that area. I think one of the, the team that I support over there, the Arizona Cardinals, I think they started off as a, a team in Chicago. So um, it Yeah, wasn't... Chicago Cardinals, they're one of the two pro teams, yeah. Mm. And you're right, because the NFL at that point was very... Um, uh, was actually quite a weak organisation, mm. and it did. And there was no the interesting thing, and again, difficult for us to appreciate given the size of the NFL today. But until the 1940s, there was no NFL franchise on the west coast of America. Mm-hmm. They basically stopped at Chicago and St. Louis, and so there was a real opportunity to play, you know, to play top class professional football in its general sense, either rugby football or American football. Hmm. On the West Coast, so you can see that the Californian opportunity could have led not just to you know rugby union in California switching over to rugby league, but it could have given the opportunity to get into California for professional football to get into California mm-hmm. before the NFL uh, got there after the war. So, um, th- so the landscape was very di- the sporting landscape in America was very different from what it is today, yeah. and. You know, you know, rugby league could offer it international competition, which no other sport could do. Yeah, well, I think uh, a lot of times you speak about uh, the the origins of of you know pretty much all those football codes and and them coming from a well in an etymological sort of sense, becoming coming all from the from almost a singularity of a game, and they are all branching out. And what a lot of people don't realise and. I uh, hope people do after listening to your podcast and other historical podcasts is that rugby league wasn't always the third or fourth choice minor sport that it kind of has become. It was it was right there with all the others. There it was an opportunity to be taken, especially in an area like America, where, like you said, the NFL was not was not the strong powerhouse it is now. This, you know, it it was a I mean, it's still a strong game, but you know, you're not talking about. Um, you're talking about if you set up a professional rugby league now, which I mean they do have one, but if you set up a, if you had a billion dollars as a professional rugby league, it's it still probably will just fold. You know what I mean? It's not going to be able to to take on the the might and power of NFL. But if you had if you had similar money back in, or not billions of dollars, but if you had similar amounts 
back in the 1930s and 40s, there was some definite opportunity for a, for a second football code to actually take over there. Yeah, that's right. And I think you, and the, once you get past, obviously, the 1939 opportunity was, uh, you know, basically didn't happen because of the war, yeah. but opportunities continue to come up in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And you do get Americans who think this very thing, but, you know, there's uh, professional football on the West Coast is still in its infancy. Mm. Um, and um, uh, there's no international competition for mm. the Americans in the football coach. And so, I mean, there's a, a journalist from uh, uh, Los Angeles, journalist Ward Nash, uh, who contacts the rugby league authorities in Australia and in Britain to say, look, let's try and get something going here because there's the potential to to actually develop professional football really in parallel and sometimes uh, with uh, American football teams because, you know, they're obviously looking for ways to expand their market and, uh, you know, give themselves an edge over the other sports. So, you know, given that if they had an international dimension and Australian or British teams are coming over to play, that would give a tremendous boost to to American football, but would also take the game, you know, take both games forward in terms of their reach. So that was something that was recognised uh, in America, and which is why uh, Ward Nash is involved with uh, initially, and then he drops out with Mike Demeter as American All Star, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, the subject of Gavin Willis's great book. Yes, yes, uh, I know how much required. So that's a, that's a great book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's absolutely fantastic, and it's it. It's, it tells a fantastic story. Um, and there was a reality to, you know, what they were trying to do, uh, that it wasn't simply, you know, a one-off thing where they thought, oh, great, we'll just get some place together and make some money. There was, initially, it started as an attempt to um, get the game going in, in, in California and to participate in the 1954 World Cup. Uh, and that was one of the things that was expected that would happen one. When Demetrius started to assemble his team, that this was kind of a preparation for playing in the, in the 54 World Cup. And obviously, uh, as we now know, they didn't get their invitation, mm-hmm. which again, I think is another sliding doors moment. What would have happened if America had played in the, in the 1954 World Cup? Uh, yeah. Uh, that yeah. could have changed the sporting landscape as well. Most definitely. I mean, like like you said, still still in the nineteen fifties. I mean, obviously NFL grows in in strength all the way up. You know, it goes right through, and then once they eventually have that merger in the seventies, it takes off from there. But yeah, if like you said, if America had played in the Rugby League World Cup in nineteen fifty four, I mean that's that's the first Rugby League World Cup. You'd have America in there. You know, it's, it'd be an amazing thing to do, like to have them in there. And if they're craving international football. You know, the, these players who are making the cho- choice between you get to play the professional sport of, of gridiron or American football and you play against other Americans or you have the opportunity to play international matches and, in a vibrant, you know, local competition and then international matches. So if Rugby League could have given that to the Americans, that, that would definitely have um, enticed at least a few of the, the young people to come across and play. And, yeah, and, and that's... And, and that, the, the fact that the Americans weren't invited to play in the World Cup is really one of the classical examples of missing an opportunity, never missing an opportunity, missing an opportunity, because uh, Bill Fallowfield, who was the RFL secretary, or effectively the chief executive at the time, hmm. um, 
actively campaigned, persuaded the French not to invite the Americans because he didn't think their standard would be very high. And there's actually a letter in the RFL archives where he writes to the, the French to say, uh, no, you can't. We don't know what standard of play is. Uh, they're, they're liable to be too weak to play in the competition. And if you include the Americans, why not include the Canadians as well? Which he means in a disparaging way. But in fact, as any rugby league expansion to say, well, yeah, why not? Yeah. And because right. again, the game was being played in the um, maritime prom- provinces in the east of. Uh, in far east, kind of the Atlantic coast of, uh, of Canada. So there was, you know, so there was, the game was being played in Canada, mm-hmm. and it's also been played in Italy and Yugoslavia. So you, you know, the potential in 1954 to have had an eight-team World Cup, which yeah. would have really given the game an international profile. Only the second major sport to have a World Cup at that point, mm-hmm. um, and you know, again, it's just a fantastic example of one of the great what ifs in rugby league history. Well, most definitely. I was actually, if you hadn't mentioned Italy, I was actually going to mention that too, because, and obviously uh, Yugoslavia as well. It's, I, I do get the point of maybe they wouldn't have been strong enough, and and maybe what the RFL was worried about was blowout scores. You know, if if they invite the Americans and they lose by a hundred plus points every single game they play, um, maybe they thought that that would that sort of make the World Cup a joke. Do you know what I mean? Like a, like a, like a lot of people yeah. say about the the Rugby World Cup when you know, say Uruguay was in it in the sort of nineties or two thousands and getting smashed. But if you think about what what's happened since, maybe it takes a few World Cups for them to catch up. But if they're not in it, then they won't they won't be in it. But if you put them in it, then they will improve. So you know, I, I can exactly. understand. Yeah, I can understand the point of why they wouldn't want them in there. Um, obviously, there's no danger for for the Great Britain side that they're going to lose to the Americans, unless they were scared of them, which I wouldn't think of. But I, I just think it would have been a case of maybe they were worried they were going to sort of make it look like a joke. And, you know, being the second World Cup you know, being held, we're the only second you know sport to do one. If we had had a World Cup where half the teams had been beaten by, you know, massive scores, then does it really it sort of puts rubbery in a bad light. So maybe there was that, that going on, or maybe you just didn't like the Americans. I'm not sure. Well, I think I think that was a big part of the argument, that they're too weak and they'd probably get smashed in every game. But mm. obviously, there are ways of organising tournaments to minimise that. Yes. Um, and the, the great irony of it was, of course, that Britain fielded a, an incredibly understrength team. Uh, I think there was, what, three players in that team that had been on the... 1954 line still mm-hmm. um, you know, during the summer of 1954. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, as I said, the, the, and in fact, it's, you know, the World Cup tradition, well, over the last few tournaments, the Rugby League World Cup has been organised to, to, to try and avoid those type of blowouts. But um, it's the prestige of, the prestige of competing in the World Cup and the game being seen as having a, uh, a world footprint outweigh those factors, I think. And uh, yeah, it's it's it's, it, it's pretty obvious given the success of the football World Cup, the soccer World Cup mm-hmm. in 1950 and 1954, that you know the World Cups, World Championships, call them what you want, were going to be the way that sport was going. And it's a um, uh, it's an example of of rumbling, kind of ignoring what the future prospects are. 
There's a great um, Wayne Gretzky, the great um, ice hockey player. I always said think thing that made him a great player was that he uh, skated to where the puck was going to be, not where the puck was. Yeah. And I think that's a great, um, uh, yeah, that's a great saying for how to develop your sport. You've got to look at where things are going to be in five years' time, ten years' time, rather than what's going on now. And I think that's one of the problems that uh, the game has historically suffered, uh, suffered from, incredible short-termism. Yeah, so, okay, the Americans aren't going to be very strong to play in the World Cup, so let's not have them. Instead of thinking, this is a World Cup, this is America, Aha, let's find a way to get them in. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, uh, look, I'm obviously not the historian, so I don't know whether there's there's much else that sort of happens in, in North America from the 1950s till the present, you know, the sort of the recent uh, Toronto Wolfpack and Ottawa Aces things. Was there was there any other attempts or any other uh, yeah. sort of well, turning points? Yeah, the, there was a discussion about whether there should be an American team in the 1960 World Oh, okay. because there was still an there was still an organisation in the states trying to promote rugby, mm-hmm. and again the game was even weaker then; it was turned down. Um, but you've also got the you know connected to America is obviously Canada as well, mm-hmm. and the game was played. Uh, well, the game basically replaced rugby union yeah. in in Eastern Canada uh, in the nineteen forties, uh, and was played. Uh, until the 1950s, and it continued in schools until the 1960s. Uh, but again, the RFL um, didn't do anything to support it. So it's interesting to compare the the way in which the RFL treated Canada and North America in contrast with Rugby Union, because when the Rugby Union British Lions returned from Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. they always played exhibition matches on the way back when they stopped in uh, in North America. Yeah. And one of the reasons why Canadian Rugby Union gained back a lot of the ground that it lost after Rugby League started in the 1940s was because every four or five years they had a British Lions team touring and, you know, they'd, um, they'd play exhibition games there. So it promoted the game, whereas, um, our guys just came straight back home, uh, and didn't bother to use the time spent traveling across America. Um, so there's a kind of, um, you know, and that's something that wouldn't have cost anything. Uh, they are they are already there, so uh, there's a kind of you know uh, blindness and inability to to think about what opportunities might be presented might be pre- presented to themselves to to rugby league just simply by by turning up. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, Canada is an example where you know there's a lot of objective problems because you've got ice hockey and you know it's a national sport. You've also got Canadian football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got American football as well. So there's a lot of co- competition um, in football terms there. But nevertheless, one of the reasons why rugby died in Canada was just neglect by the by the major countries. Yeah, I think look at when you, when you look at rugby league against the the American football and especially the Canadian football, there's there's so much similarity, especially when rugby league went to you know four tackles and onto six tackles after that. Um, it, it's really the games are probably in that period where where we went to four tackles. I don't think we got anywhere. Like I think it's the closest those two sports have been together, and and basically there was no. There was no real attempt in because that's the sort of that's the seventies in that point, um, 
you know, 1960, like you said, the trying to get Americans in the World Cup, and then you're talking about sort of 1940s Canada. Um, it doesn't seem like there was much, much forthright, or much thought about doing anything in in North America in the sort of 70s or 80s, as far as I can see. No, there was a um, there's a guy, a former American footballer called Mike Mayer, who um, tried to get the game going in the 70s and 80s. Mm. Um, but he never got sufficient traction, su- sufficient support uh, yeah. from the authorities. Um, but I think you're right. I mean, and this keeps coming up that you know that basically, well, there's a famous phrase from Jack Gibson where he said, um, "You know, rugby league and American football, uh, it's basically the same game but with different rules." Yeah. And but, yeah, but, but by which he meant, you know, it's all about uh, running hard, tackling hard, and scoring tries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's true. There's a basic similarity between the two games. But, but you know, rugby league is, we've never really, um, we, we've never really sought to get any leverage on that. In any substantial way. Well, as far as I can see, any time that rugby league tries to promote itself in North America, it, it always tries to promote itself as, we don't wear helmets. Like that's that's the only thing they tend to do. And and I mean, uh, speaking as you know from Australian, if, if another sport came over and and tried to you know say, hey, we're 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 like your sport, but our guys are tougher and better. Um, I think I yeah. probably you would object to it. You know, um, and exactly. You know, exactly. that's not the way to to promote it. The, the way to promote it would have been, it's it's a similar sport. It's it's got some different rules, but it's enjoyable. And you know, if you like American football, you may like this too. Rather than trying to trying to attack it and and have a go at a, at their their national well not their national game because it's baseball, but one of their national games, um, you know, it, it sort of seems like it's a it's very hard to to break into a market. And, and I mean, they had opportunities before that, and they never really came about. But you know, if you're ever going to try and break into a new market like that when someone's established. You're definitely going to have to come up with something better than our guys don't wear as much protective gear as your guys, and we hit harder. Yeah, and I, I think, part, and also, I think the other thing that lacks credibility because it's a different type of game, but it's uh, it's just as hard as rugby league. Oh, of course um, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. So it, it's kind of uh, it's kind of stupid to argue that it's not. Yeah, you know, rugby league is tougher or whatever. They're, they're both incredibly tough games. Mm-hmm. In, in different ways so I think you're right it kind of you know it's like you're coming in and criticising my game so I'm slightly slightly suspicious of it and I think that I mean I've said this before that I think one of the things that we often miss uh, when we're marketing the game is how skillful it is mm. uh, and that's the one thing that no other handling football coach can match rugby league from uh, can match rugby league for yeah the ability of all players to handle uh, handle the ball in an incredible uh, range of styles, um, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, don't matter what position you, you're going to be playing in rugby league, you have to be an expert passer of the ball. Um, and you, you know, if you're a winger, you have to be able to do incredible dives over the uh, um, over, uh, over the, um, the corner posts. All this type of thing, which are incredible skills, and I don't think we make enough of those uh, either. It's uh, you know, all all the collision sports are tough to play, yeah. uh, whether it's American football, rugby, rugby union, whatever. Um, 
you know, they're, they're all tough in their own distinctive ways, but the one thing we can offer over all of those sports is the incredible handling skills of all of our players. I think that's a, something that's often forgotten about when we're marketing the game, and particularly in areas like North America, where they've already got their own tough game. You know, yeah. We're not going to be able to say it's a tougher game in reality. Nobody's, nobody's going to take that seriously. No, that's right. And I mean, it's not like Americans just want things to be tough. You know, that one of their favourite sports is, is the NBA basketball. And I mean, that's a, for want of a better word, a non-contact sport. But it's the skill in that game. That's what they, it's the the charisma of the players and the skill is what is what is their marketing. So if rugby league was more marketed as, look at all these great athletes, look at all these things they can do. You know, they look at the, the skill with the ball. Everyone Everyone has to have skill. Um, you know, it's it's probably a it's probably a very good marketing ploy. But I, look, we're not really in this for marketing. I think we we're still kind of in it for for what this holds for North America. Um, I I sort of don't know at this point. I'm not sure how much further you jump forward because I only know from this point uh, the American National Rugby League Association or whatever they were called, um, who have become, I think have become the US. ARL or something like that, yeah. you know, and that and look, I think they they've been trying for a while, but very much a just an amateur sport as far as I can see. And then and then the Great Toronto Experiment happens. Um, what what do you, I mean? Obviously, everyone's had their their thoughts on Toronto and and what's happened, but uh, how much of a setback for North like North American rugby league do you think is Toronto folding? I, I think it's a huge setback. Um, and it's one that the sport will find difficult to recover from because once you've abandoned the market and you've abandoned, you know, thousands, literally thousands of loyal supporters mm. and given them no pathway back, then that makes it very difficult. Um, so I'm not quite sure what the future holds. I mean, hopefully something will uh, return to Toronto and we'll get a rugby focus back. Mm. Um, but it demonstrates just how, you know, how attractive the game the game is to people when they see it for the first time. You know, the fact that Toronto could average, what, 7,000 people when they're playing in the second tier yeah. of um, the British Rugby League uh, yeah. is it, it, incredible. So, um, again, though, it's a classic missing an opportunity, uh, never missing an opportunity. Because, you know, if we go back to the, the, the Wayne Gretzky quotes, you know, skate to where the puck is. Yeah. In five years' time, in sport is it's going to be even more global than it is today. Mm-hmm. And even if uh, you know, even if the pandemic pandemic continues, then there's still going to be increased appetite for sport around the world to watch uh, on TV and digital TV, uh, social media um, extracts televised um, highlights and things like that are going to be even more important and losing Toronto means that we don't have easy access to the Canadian market or more general the use of it as a as a launch pad for further developments across North America yeah. so it's a um, it's, it's just another classic mistake because you know notice just I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of Lee and notice the depth of them and their supporters and the Mm-hmm. You know, they're a classic, you know, British rugby league team. But in 10 years' time, the global footprint of sport is not going to be focused on league. It's going to be focused 
on North America, China, and the other market, emerging market. Yeah, I mean, so it, I think yeah, you know, it's great. It's a lack of strategic foresight as much as anything else. That's right. Well, I was going to say, if you're um, if you're a sport lover and sitting down, you know, in Toronto, even anywhere else in North America, and you turn on and you can see, oh, there's this sport, rugby league, or there's American football, or that you know, I mean, you've got the choice. Far less of them are going to make the choice to to watch a game of, of rugby league. If there was a Toronto team playing in even if even if they had only survived one more season and then been relegated back down to championship and they'd been up and down and whatever there's a team there um and they're aware of it so next time you know uh, the challenge cup comes on maybe they'll watch it you know next time an nrl game comes on they'll watch it you know and then it grow it only can grow from there so if you can if rugby league could pick up 0.5% of the north american like eyeballs, that's still probably more people than watch it than than actually watching any of those northern towns in England. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to um, you've got to be realistic that hmm. you know, the sport's never going to challenge the NFL, of course, not. or even the Canadian Football League, uh, which most people outside of Canada haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. But uh, the chance to do that, the chance to get you know two, three, four, five percent market share of sports TV viewers mm-hmm. in North America is fantastic opportunity. It, it, it's absolutely massive. Um, and so, you know, the idea that, well, Toronto was badly run, which it obviously was, yeah. uh, and that that disqualifies, automatically disqualifies them would probably mean that you know, 95% of British rugby league clubs at some point or another should have been disqualified because of rank bad management, you know, bad Bad practices, bad business practices in rugby league is nothing new and uh, will always be around. The COVID actually gave them a chance for the, to step back. Toronto obviously couldn't play because of international travel restrictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's um, let's use the the time out of the league to sort the business practices out, get decent owners, and figure out how we're going to take it forward. But simply to abandon it um, in the way that it was abandoned is um, it's just shockingly bad business practice. Yeah, it's. I th- it feels like everyone around, like every rugby league expansionist and rugby league lover around the globe, was was watching. You know, re- like scrolling down, waiting for the news to see what was going to happen with that vote. And I think we all, in the back of our minds, really knew what was going to happen because when you have you know eleven clubs who are directly going to be influenced by what happens in this vote voting, um, and some of them concerned that they were going to lose their spot at the table you know, in the next few years they're hardly going to vote for someone who's going to take that spot off them so you know I just it's it's a big shame and I obviously we and un- we all understand that it was poorly run and that's not you know that's that's not obviously any of those clubs fault but you know there, there's obviously got to be some forthright some look at it and to say look you know there is an opportunity here and let's stop wasting these opportunities that we have. I mean, you know, we had a game, we had a single game played in Denver, you know, a test match. I I haven't heard a single thing about going back to Denver at any points. I haven't heard anything about trying to encourage a local rugby league in Denver. It just seemed to be using the opportunity to try and make a bit of money and then run away with the money. That's that's what it seems to be. And and like we've talked about all these ones in the past, you know, you talked about the... uh, the All Stars coming down to Australia. No, that was 
that was almost just a money. It was pretty much a money making exercise too. There was no real, real forthright, no nothing really to to make it so that they could, you know, they could uh, cash in to what it was for a long term. They weren't they weren't looking to to expand the game. They were looking to expand their pockets more than anything else. Yeah, and I think that's. But to some extent, that that the use of these events to develop the game that's a responsibility of the governing body. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you need a strategy in place, a five, ten year strategy to figure out where you want to be in ten years time. And is it the case that there's um, prospects for a club or something similar in Denver or an amateur league in Denver? I don't know, but I don't think anybody else knew either. It was just somebody thought, well, let's have a game in Denver. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, again, this is not to denigrate the people involved in, you know, did a job, but, you know, it's how does that fit into the strategy of the game? Where, you know, where are we going to, where are we going to be? Where do we want to be? Hmm. Do we want to be in Denver? Um, do we want to be somewhere else? I mean, I think that's the other thing about the Toronto decision. I mean, if you look at it in historical terms, you want to think that, okay, maybe, maybe rugby league in Britain doesn't want to be in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, fine, make a case for where it should be instead. And that's the thing. And so, if you, if, if you generally thought that the future of the game is to remain in its northern heartlands and to develop, you know, to, uh, uh, to develop the traditional clubs, then you know that's a strategy. Um, you know, if that's a long-term plan and it's clearly thought out and you can understand the underlying reasons, for this, then that's fine. I might not agree with it, but at least we know where we're going to. We, we know where we're going, and we can you know, evaluate how successful the game has been in meeting those goals. But at the moment, and it's you know, like, like the same in Australia as well. Mm. Nobody knows where we're going to be. No. Nobody knows, you know, what our um, strategy is. Nobody knows what our goals are for the next five or ten years. In no. Australia, you know, everything's decided on the, the size of, by the size of the TV contract, yes. um, and which is to some extent the case in Britain. But um, there's no sense that we should be thinking about where, we, how we're going to use that TV contract, um, how we're going to use that. As, a launch pad for, for the future. And I think that's the the problem. In a sense, that's a, the underlying problem that the game's always faced. It's always been, it's always had a short-term perspective and it's always put the interests of clubs ahead of the interests of the game as a whole. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. And it, the, I suppose the other, the other point of all this is that there's another club that obviously they're going to play this year, but there's that club in Ottawa who... You know, are, are supposed to come into League One next year. Uh, I'm not sure if yeah. that's still going to happen or not. Obviously, there's there's some reasons for for not starting this year. Um, but you know, are we going to be in the same situation in a few years' time? Is is Ottawa going to be Toronto too? Um, and if it does come around again, where Ottawa gets to the point where they they win promotion to Super League, are they going to be allowed in? It, it's there's no real plan, and I understand what you're saying. It's if the plan is that okay, we'll be happy to accept one or two French sides, but we basically want this to be English sides only. Um, they really need to just say that. That's that needs to be what they're saying. And if they if they don't want sides from Canada, then don't let them 
enter at League One, spend millions of dollars getting to the top of the, you know top of the the tier, and then you know basically abandon them if they have any problems. Yeah, and I think that, I think you hit the nail on the head. The problem is that no one in the leadership of the game in Britain or Australia knows yeah. what they want to do, what they what their attitude would be towards that. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, to some extent, these are these are problems that the game has always had, and they're problems of a game that faces a lot of um, objective obstacles, both in terms of finance and also in terms of where it's come from, culture and the problems it's faced in the past, mm. in terms of you know, it's the, uh, the way it's been, in which it's been discriminated against by rugby union, which is restricted its growth. Yeah. So there are lots of things like that that, um, you know, that are real factors and there's not much you can do about and they're difficult things to deal with. But that's not to say they can't be dealt with and there aren't ways around it. I mean, that's a, that's really the issue that we've got, that we don't have a clear framework for dealing with those problems, which would enable us to go forward properly rather than, you know, but to a large extent, we're stuck in Groundhog Day. Yeah, yeah. The, the same debates keep coming up time and time again because they've never been resolved. There's, there's never any solutions proposed to, to move forward from them. And I think that's a... That's the point about having a strategy. You may disagree with the strategy, but at least everybody knows where we're going, yeah, and exactly. it can be evaluated. Whereas at the moment, say every every season is groundhog season. <laughs> well, I was talking to um, to someone from from a podcast over in, in England from uh, the Super League Pod. Uh, I'll shout out to Mark. Uh, he was talking yeah, Mark, about yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so he was talking about uh, we, we were more talking about uh, league structure, which is a little bit different. But uh, we were talking about the amount of times the league structure in in England had changed since 1985 when he started watching it. Um, I think we lost count. So uh, it seems like there's there's never a, a plan. There's never a more than one or two year plan that seems to happen. So uh, you know they need to. I agree with you totally. There needs to be a plan. If it's that expansion is not what they want, then they need to just put that straight out there now. We're not going to expand. Our next TV contract, you know, is is next year. We're going to get a five-year contract. This is what the teams are going to be. Um, we're not going to invite new teams from North America, and that's just what it is. But in the same sense, if that's what they decide to do, then maybe it's up to the other international, the actual international bodies to to foster these competitions in North America. Maybe it's not up to the RFL to to be sort of bringing through the the North American market. It it seems like an opportunity missed though, because there is so much money there, and and if any you know any rugby league organisation can can crack that market, and like you said, get two to five percent of of sport you know rusted on sports viewers watching rugby league and contributing to it, then it's it's a multi-billion dollar industry there you know it's something that can be can be exploited but maybe the rfl just doesn't see the potential there well i think yeah i, th- I think that's probable I, I know when when super league discussed whether the wolf pack should be allowed to stay in uh, should should be allowed to stay in in, in super league after mm. they were through they they commissioned a report which said that there was no market for watching rugby 
in Canada because the contract for the Six Nations Rugby Union tournament um, brought in a, a negative amount of money yeah. for Rugby Union, yeah. which I thought was uh, a bizarre thing to say because last time I looked, and it's starting, it's starting today actually, the Six Nations again, uh, last time I looked, there wasn't a Canadian team in the Six Nations. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. uh, it's not really a valid point of comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, one of the interesting things about this is that this relationship with North America has existed for almost as long as rugby league has existed. Mm-hmm. The, the sense that they're playing a very similar game, um, they speak the same language, which makes it very easy, particularly for a, a sport that is, um, yeah, has notoriously limited language skill. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and he can go back even before the First World War when, um, when Lucius Banks, the first professional black rugby league player, was brought over from New York mm-hmm. uh, because there was a Hunslet uh, member of the uh, there was a member of the Hunslet committee who was in New York on business at the time uh, who spotted him playing American football. So that, that so that's the kind of first example of how people saw there was a crossover between uh, the yeah North American football and, and rugby league football. Um, and, you know, the examples that we've talked about uh, today in terms of California, then Canada, North America, and the All-Star and stuff like that, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing relationship. And at some point, that link will, as you know, sport changes as society changes, that link will disappear. And I think that, that we now, we're now in a position where rugby league runs the risk that a rugby union uh, follows its path and has a couple of teams in North America playing in whatever the, uh, whatever you know, uh, yeah. rugby union league uh, attracts them. I mean, they've already got South African teams playing in um, the um, whatever it's called. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, follow, I don't watch rugby union, so I have no, no idea. No, I'm trying to think. I'm, <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't, I don't really watch any of the sport apart from rugby league. Yeah. Um, but so this, but the, but these things are happening. So other sports are doing this. Uh, and American football players, the NFL players, uh, series of matches in London every year as well. So yeah. other sports are doing this. So it, it is possible. Mm-hmm. And it is where sports is heading. And, you know, we, uh, unless we, we act and do something to capitalize on that interest, then, you know, that, that opportunity will unfortunately close up because either things will have changed and it's no longer possible or some other sport will have gotten in there and we, yeah, you know, we will have missed out the advantage of being the first, first, um, first players in the market, if you like. Yeah, that's that's very true. Well, I, sorry, I just want to I just want to apologise to the RFL in a way because I, I keep saying RFL, but I do note that when the Toronto vote came through, the RFL actually voted to keep them. So um, I think I think as RFL, I'm talking about just the general game in in England. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's the general. I think it's yeah. the game. I mean, there's no. I mean, I mean, and also I think the other points are very nice. It's, yeah. It's no particular individual. I think these, we're, we're talking about you know, institutional problems rather than you know, yes. whoever happens to be yeah. in charge at any given moment. Because I think you know, a lot of the people in the leadership of the game are struggling with these issues uh, and they are aware of them. But mm-hmm. they're also struggling under the weight of you know, the institutional pressures that they face and the pressures they face from the club. So sometimes they can't actually act in the way that they'd want to. But you're right. It's the it's the institutions of the game as a whole, rather than any 
Particular good for the body or particular person, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. I, I just want to. I just realised I was being unfair to to one part of it, but I, I I totally support what you're saying there. It's it's as a whole we're sort of talking about this. Uh, look, I I don't know if we can go too much further with it with this without um, making some crazy predictions about what North American Rugby League will hold in the future, and I don't know whether there's much we can really say. Um, we I don't think anyone would have predicted. 10 years ago there would be a team in Toronto playing in Super League uh, and I and I don't think anyone would have predicted two years ago that Toronto wouldn't be around anymore so uh, it's pretty hard to, to follow the trends of what possibly could happen in the future but do you, just as a general idea, do you still think that there is, I mean what do you think about teams from Canada in, in the English Super League or do you think it would be better for say, you know teams in North America to try and join a, a lower tier Australian league or do you think they should have their own league? What, what do you think would be the best idea for them to, to go forward? I, I think the I think the model that Toronto presented of being a North American team in the British league mm-hmm. is perhaps the best model. The idea that we should wait until Canada or the United States can develop its own professional league um, is um, is mistaken. That will never happen. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no way you can develop. You can't. There's only one NFL, and there aren't a plethora of um, other NFL leagues because it's so difficult to develop a professional league in a mature sports market. If we'd have gone back in nineteen, well, in nineteen, in the 1940s after the war, the early nineteen fifties, because the football market in America was so immature, it was basically dominated by college football. Hmm. It was a chance of developing another professional rugby league football competition, yeah. but I don't think that's the case now. Um, and that's not to denigrate the efforts of people involved in the domestic leagues in Canada and, uh, and the US, um, and they are, you know, they're good things in themselves, and they. They should be supported and encouraged and given all the support by the international game that, that they can be given. But in terms of the professional game, I think the we have an adva- rugby league has an advantage in that for a professional team sport, the costs of entry for owners are, are very low compared to buying an English Premier League club or a uh, certainly an NFL franchise yeah. uh, or even a rugby union club. Uh, so we've got, we've got an advantage and. One of the great things about rugby league, I mean, we've been, I've been very critical of the game so far, but one of the great things about the game is that it's always been willing to be innovative and, and take a chance on occasion. And so there is that tradition of um, uh, doing something different, doing something new that would, uh, that would support clubs. The other thing, I think, from the, from the perspective of the British game, because obviously, you know, regardless of how much interest there is in North America. Hmm. The British game is always going to act fundamentally in the interest of the British clubs. I also think from the British perspective, and the idea that you have one or two clubs from outside the traditional rugby areas, rugby league areas, hmm. and I'm not talking about uh, Catalans or Toulouse, because France is a traditional rugby league area, and there's just, hmm. you know, uh, Catalans and Toulouse are as much traditional rugby league clubs as Lee or Hawkins and Roman. But those areas like Canada, North America, Spain, perhaps, I don't know, mm-hmm. Germany, perhaps, um, that's probably where there is the opportunity 
for grow, revenue growth for the British game by looking at those new markets and selling TV rights in those new markets because they've got a team that you know Canadian viewers or German viewers can see every every week. Mm-hmm. Then that's something that will help to bring revenue into the British game. And from the perspective of the British game, which you know for a whole variety of reasons, partly because of economic reasons beyond its control, partly because of problems within the game, it's um, it needs to be strengthened. And the heartlands of the game in the north of England do need to have attention to it. And so I think I've said this before. I think the solution for that is to you know, go back to traditional. Rubbing virtues of grit and glamour. That you know, the grit is the north and heart of the game, and the glamour traditionally, before uh, you know, before and after World War Two, was you know, star Australian players coming over to play, which gave it added glamour. It was touring French sides that gave it glamour. It was the international test matches that gave it glamour. Now, one of the ways we can give it glamour is by bringing teams in from big cities uh, outside of the traditional areas, like you know, Toronto, New York. Boston, mm-hmm. Philadelphia, um, Berlin, Cologne. Who knows? Um, yeah. So I think that's. It's not simply about expanding the footprint of the game around the world. It's also about doing something that will help to secure the future of British rugby league as well. Yeah. Well, look, I I think we'll go back to what we were saying. The basic point we were saying before is that there needs to be a plan. There needs to be a plan to say exactly what's going to happen. Because it seems like there's a whole hoop of different groups all just scattershotting. And, um, you know, when, when you mentioned, you know, Spain and you mentioned Germany and things like that, it made me think of, you know, the recent, well, I think it was last year where they were talking about having a, a cup competition, a, the Euro 13s or whatever it was, um, which, yeah, uh, which are yeah. still, which is still bubbling away in the background. Obviously didn't happen, probably not going to happen this year because of what's happening. But, you know that's a competition that's been set up by some part, like some federations of, of different um, nations, but not the European Federation. The European Federation are trying to set up their own competition, which is in a similar vein. So it it just needs an organisation, and it seems like we're all pulling in different directions. Everyone has a great idea. Everyone thinks this is the best way to go about it. Let's just get a bit of money together, and we'll just do this. So um, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. If the British game doesn't think North America is for them. They just need to just say it. They need to have a plan of what they're going to do in the next five, ten years and just follow the plan because it seems like they, they're just kind of coasting along hoping that the money will fall in their pockets and, and everyone think, everything will go back to the, the glory of the 80s and 90s and, and everyone will be happy again and, and the, you know everything will just be the way it used to be. But they need to actually plan to to rejuvenate the game in the north if that's what they need to do and if they want to bring in teams from other places they need to actually have plans for them it just seems like they're waiting for billionaire owners to turn up and say hey i'd really love to have a a team in this space um and then they'll say oh great here here's a uh, license for league one we'll see in about three years when you qualify for super league and hopefully you've still got money left yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and i I think it's kind of, I mean, if it, as it put in my historian's heart, that's that's one of the problems that the game has always faced. Um, and I think when you look at the origins of the game in Britain and Australia, you can see why, because it was formed by clubs. 
Mm. Clubs control the game, and that um, that problem has never been dealt with. Um, you know, ironically, the opportunity to really deal with that would have been during the Super League Wars, where it, it would have been possible to use the money from Murdoch to set up an organisation, kind of on the similar lines to the NFL, where um, clubs apply for membership. Um, but the game is run by a completely independent body, not like the ARO Commission uh, or the ARO body directors. Um, but yet again, the the strength of the the clubs within the game stop that from happening. So it's a it's a perennial problem. I think it's only going to be solved when and if there's a really smart administration that can figure out a way to overcome. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's all we can talk about for for, to, for this episode, Tony. I, I thank you very much for joining me, um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, definitely. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. <laughs>